Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with Bill Arnold. That is me. I am so glad that we are uh, gathering the guys together for Guy Talk today, or Guys Who Talk. The power panel today in place is Pastors Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, and Dr. Peter Kapsner. And that is our one, hour two. I'm going to be joined by Dr. Randy Newman, who's written a new book called Mere Evangelism. Randy is a, uh, a scholar at the C.S. Lewis Institute. Of course, he has a play on words from the great uh, work of C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, and his book is called Mere Evangelism. And I've uh, been reading this book the last several days, and it's fantastic. So that is the plan for today. I hope you can spend all two hours with me. And if not, maybe you can uh, catch things on the podcast because you don't want to miss a thing, especially for Guide Talk. If you have a question, send it over, 877 2484. You can also do the other way, which is email. You can email me to uh, bill at myfaithradio.com, bill at myfaithradio.com, or 877-933-2484. Gentlemen, welcome. Hi, Bill. Hi, Bill, and everybody in radio land. (laughs) Thank you, Tom, for that. Tom Brock, always (laughs) adding that little extra something. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That nobody asked for. (laughs) But you didn't pay for it either, Bill. Oh, I didn't pay for it. (laughs) So I got some questions. You guys want questions? Let's try it. Certainly. Let's get to them. Um, This first question came in yesterday on on uh, an email to me. Uh, Hi, Bill, and most excellent panel. What a nice way to address you guys. Isn't that nice? I'm impressed. Me too. That's very unusual. He's talking about us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that surprised me as well. <laughs> me too. Yeah. I wonder about fear of hell and eternal damnation as a motivation to an unbeliever for seeking God. On one hand, I don't think that hell is even on people's radar. And personally, it was a big motivation for me to not go there and not suffer eternal damnation. Should this be an important aspect of our message? I've run into two Two kinds of people uh, out there that are unbelievers. You have a group of people that have a consciousness of hell, even though they're not Christians. But they're a small percentage of the people that I run into. Then you have people that have had the near-death experiences, and I've been with several of these people that have had literally hell experiences. And what convinced me it was real is that I watched it change their lives. Mm-hmm. I mean, totally change their lives. They said, I never want to go back there. I never want to do that again. But um, for the vast majority of people... Uh, no, I don't think there's much consciousness of hell at all. I think they're living for the immediate moment and they're not thinking about it. Yeah, I think when you when you start talking about whether fear of hell or fear of eternal suffering is a motivation to come into the kingdom, I would say that it's definitely a motivation and should be part of the mix of, of what we're talking about here. I think if we make it the motivation or the only motivation, and, and I'll say this with all the students that I've had over the years, if if I had a hundred students in the room and ninety, you know, all hundred said they were believers, I would say probably ninety of them would say they are more uh, afraid of hell than they are persuaded by heaven. And and a student actually say that very phrase, and it really resonated 
with the room. And so I think it's it has to be part of the mix. But I guess what I would be concerned about if it's the only thing that we're talking about is sometimes we're just we, we don't know of the goodness, of the richness, of the love, of the delight, of, of how God is pursuing us. And I, and I don't mean American love, American permission, that's sort of sappy and just letting you do whatever you want to do. We're, we're talking about the passionate, energetic God who is pursuing us because he wants us to participate in his beautiful kingdom of delight. And, and when students have come into the kingdom only out of fear— they have a really hard time then adjusting to the idea that God is actually their shepherd who wants to walk through the trials and travails of life with them. So I think it has to be one of, of the pieces of the puzzle, but I think for maybe too many people, it's the only piece of the puzzle, and they never actually really get to know the God who is worthy of our love, of our service, of our worship, not and not out of fear entirely, but out of he just he is really, truly a good father. And so I think, it, I think there has to be other pieces of the puzzle. I think I asked a lady once, when's the last time your pastor preached on hell? And her response is, was, he's never preached on hell. And I think if you count the verses, Jesus talks more about hell than he does about heaven. And so, <clears throat> and then in Luke chapter 12, I think the disciples were fearing the Pharisees. And Jesus says, disciples, don't fear men. All they can do is kill your body. I will tell you whom to fear. Fear him. They're talking about, he's mm-hmm. talking about God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now in the same chapter, Jesus says, don't fear. You're of more value than many sparrows. So I, I think we are to fear God, but um, when you fear him, he assures you that through Christ, your sins are forgiven. You've got a heavenly father. But... <coughs> um, I think we preach on hell way too little. That's my opinion. I mean, the the thing that the most famous sermon in American history from the 1700s was Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You read that, uh, it'll make you go to church. And <laughs> and uh, so I think we need more of that preaching. That's the kind of preaching that started the First Great Awakening and many got saved. And today, I think you're right, people don't think about hell, partly because... Their pastors never preach it, or their pastors don't believe in it. I'm on a clergy Facebook page with some mainline Protestant pastors that are very, very liberal. A lot of them don't believe in hell, and they would say, don't be negative, just, you know, the love of God, love of God. Again, well, Jesus said there's a hell. Right. And when people say, well, my loving Jesus would never send anyone to hell, well, Jesus said in, in Matthew, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Right. Now, that's Jesus talking. So our loving Jesus will send people to hell. So I think we need we need more hell, not less. Because again, when's the last time you heard a sermon on hell? Good point, Tom Brock. Yeah, it is. It is good. I, I really do. There's a movement within evangelicalism in general to uh, move to a God of universalism, that even if people do spend some time apart from hell and, uh, or apart from God in eternity, that eventually God's love will win them back. And I don't know that that has any real helpful biblical foundation, but uh, getting—and so I do think we need to talk about it much more substantively than we do. Well, however, looking back at the Jonathan Edwards sermon, I, I, there's maybe um, one piece of, of nuance on that, is that before he brewed up Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and, and he did that sermon in a small town, in a, a small New England town, to a church that was relatively fat and happy and and uh, was not terribly interested in their own— um, 
sinful ways of life, and he really wanted to wake him up. But it, it's an interesting story because he gave a sermon similar to that prior to, to brewing up sinners in the hands of an angry God, and it didn't have the impact that he wanted it to have in terms of jarring people awake from their sin. And so that's when he brought the next one. And, and there, there's no doubt in that next one uh, what he had in mind. But I think if we just make this one size fits all and and feel like, hey, we can just preach that sermon and should preach that sermon at everybody, well, again, here's what I know. I, when I'm dealing with young people week in and week out in the classroom, most of them are utterly terrified of God, and they don't want to even talk about sin that they might have because they're afraid that they're going to be you know, sinners in the hands of an angry God. And so they kind of live these hypocritical lifestyles. And, and when I ask them the question, if you pulled back the curtain of your heart and, and let people see what's really going on inside, what, what would that be like? And, and they're terrified by that. And so I think, at least in some settings, we need to reassure people that it was actually the love of God and the grace of God that caused heaven to rend open and come and save us from our sins, not because he had to sort of assuage his anger, as it were, as if he was walking around this this, uh, this volatile tyrant in heaven looking to get rid of his anger somehow, so he took it out on his son. Uh, we have to be very clear, when people are fat and happy and, and don't care about their sin, it's probably time to wake them up a little bit, but I'm not sure it's a one-size-fits-all message, because at the end of the day, it was love that motivated heaven to come and save the world from their sin, so that they wouldn't end up in uh, in separation and eternity. But Peter, wouldn't you agree that Jesus did satisfy the wrath of God against our sin on the cross? Well, it would be, you know, yes, of course. I mean, that would be Anselmian language from about 1100 um, AD, in which he was the first to really robustly bring that argument to the table. Prior to Anselm really emphasizing the substitutionary dimension, and clearly that's there, most of the Church talked about the idea that we were ransomed or rescued from the powers of darkness so that we could live in the resurrection life of the kingdom. And I think, Tom, one of my concerns is if we only stick on the on more of the Anselm emphasis of this, we end up with a Good Friday-only gospel yeah. in which our sins got <laughs> forgiven at the cross, but we don't understand that the tomb being empty and Jesus coming through those waters of sin and death calls us to live a life victorious over sin. And that, in my mind, really is, is well, the heart of the gospel. But Peter, to me, I mean, I, I think Anselm definitely believed in substitution, but you find it in the Old and New Testament, Isaiah 53, Romans chapter 3. Uh, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteous. To me, I think Christ dying for our sins in our place is central, not just to medieval teaching, but in, in the New Testament. I think one of the problems is we have as pastors, and it's pretty universal, we have presented a Jesus to people that's only half the story. We have not present, we presented the, the shepherd who's got the lamb in his arm and who dearly loves us and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But we haven't presented the one that's talked about in Revelation that's coming back with a sharp double-edged sword in his mouth, the one that will not be mocked, the one who has a very serious story. And when I came to know Jesus, the reality was the more I've come to know him over all these years, the more I am conscious of hell, not because I'm afraid of going there, but because I know I don't want anybody else to go there, and I want them to know this real Jesus who is the, the lion of the tribe of Judah. You don't want to mess with the lion, no. and yet he is loving and he is caring, and we don't do that enough, and so we create a fear of hell, but I hope to help people fall in love with Jesus. Yeah, and Luther yeah. would yeah. say you preach the law first and then the gospel, mm -hmm. and that's what Paul does in Romans. Romans chapter 1, he condemns all the 
Gentiles under the wrath of God. On Romans chapter 2, he condemns the Jews under the wrath of God. So in chapter 3, he can bring in Christ to save us from the wrath of God. But if you don't know that you're a sinner under the wrath of God, you don't need Jesus. No. So we need to preach the, uh, <clears throat> you preach the law first, you get people conscious of their sin, then you preach the gospel. I mean, if I can talk real quick, the when I used to have a bunch of eighth graders, uh, first confirmation class, if I would have walked into the class and said, Jesus died for your sins, they would have yawned. But what I do is I write the Ten Commandments on the board, and I show them how everybody has broken those thought co- in thought, word, and deed. And I show them how they're on their way to hell, and now they're scared. And then I say, now... Do you want to know how to be saved from your sins? Yeah, 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 yeah. And so, you know, if you uh, you got to preach the law first, and then the gospel makes sense. I think in our uh, in American Christianity, God's a kind of a marshmallow grandpa, and and we need to preach that God is displeased with our sin. He sent His Son to die for our sin to rescue us, and both have to be done: the law and the gospel. So the last five minutes, I stepped out for a cup of coffee. Did I, did I miss anything? Great, no, great start. Great start. All right, let me take a little break. When we come back, lots more guide talk or guys who talk. Let me know what your questions are. 877-933-2484. That's the text line, 877-933-2484. You can also email me, bill at myfaithradio.com. We'll be right back. love for you to share your story about why you love Faith Radio and what has Faith Radio changed the way you think about something or even how you live. We want to hear from you. Your story can encourage others and glorify God. Share what you love about Faith Radio by calling 877-933-2484 and leaving a message today. Back with Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk. Pastors Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, and Peter Kapsner is the all star lineup today. Uh, 007 is unavailable on some mission of some kind. We don't ask questions. Um, we're on a need to know basis, and apparently, according to Justin, we, we don't need, don't to, need know. to know. Yeah. Great questions coming in, but I think that there's some cleanup on aisle five still from this last question. Well, what we need to do is understand this hell opens a doorway for people to look at their sin. Here's the problem when Jesus. When Philip brought Nathaniel to Jesus, what was the first thing Jesus said to Nathaniel? You know, you know, I saw you sitting under the fig tree, you know, before you came and that. How did you know? You know, this type of thing. What we do is I understand and I preach hell. I've, you know me, Tom. I'm not afraid of that topic at all. But I think what we need to do, like with millennials especially, millennials don't believe in sin. But they do believe in shame and guilt. And I have said to many of those millennials, tell me about your shame and guilt. How are you dealing with that? Do you have a way to remedy that in your life? Or is it going to just drag you down for the rest of your life and you're going to carry this burden, you know, and carry the burden after death itself? And they say, no, but I have no idea how to get rid of it. Then we open the door to the gospel. So I think it is, yeah, hell is real. uh, But I think we have to look at the individual and see where they're coming from as we present the message of the gospel and of hell to them as well. It's both and. 
Yeah, agreed. And and I don't want to be misunderstood for him trying to go at it from a different direction, that I don't believe that Jesus accomplished uh, the kind of substitution that was present in Old Testament. I mean, Hebrews is very clear that it was a once-for-all sacrifice that he yeah. made, and and I'm so appreciative of what happened uh, in the Old Testament, where the community was seen as actually taking their polluted blood, or, or in, the, in the Hebrew it's polluted nephesh, or blood, or life force, and they were seen as pouring it into the sacrificial animal, where then the animal would take that and, sub and be substituted and have their blood spilled and thus taking the, uh, the the sin metaphorically and really away from the community. But they had to keep doing that because the animal blood was not sufficient to, to purify and to cleanse everybody of their sins. There needed to be a different sacrifice to substitute. And of course, Jesus, with the divine blood, the divine nephesh in him, was able to take the fullness of sin and purify it once for all. Thus, Hebrew says we can approach the throne room of grace with confidence as, as his blood sprinkles us. All of that, I think, um, all of that is true about Good Friday, and and I emphasize and talk about that. I think where I'm trying to nuance it or tease it out a little bit is in my experience with young people and oftentimes with Christians in the church, there's absolutely no doubt that they're afraid of their sin for the most part. Now, culture, you want to talk something different or maybe some other church traditions besides um, maybe Reformed evangelicalism or something, maybe there is that need to wake up. But in most of the context in which I run, People are, are deadly aware of their sin, so much so that they wonder why they're still struggling with it. And then we get the most common question that we get, it seems like, on Faith Radio is, can I lose my salvation? And people are asking that question because they're still struggling with sin. They're afraid, all of that. Those people don't need um, the angry God sermon anymore from, from a Good Friday. We don't need to talk about that part of it. We need to start talking about what Paul said when he said, if the resurrection hadn't happened, your faith is actually in vain. So don't stop at Good Friday. If you stop there, you don't actually have a faith that works or is, is going to be effective for your life. Um, it's because the tomb is empty and Jesus went into the waters of sin and death, conquered the power that they have in their ruling effect in this world, and then gives us the power to fight against with a resurrection power, the power of sin and death in our life. So when people are questioning their salvation, it's mostly because they're afraid and they don't have any idea how to get out of the trappings of sin, because I would suggest we don't have a robust enough gospel that goes beyond Good Friday and into Easter Sunday, where we learn how to live by the res resurrection power of the Spirit on an ongoing basis. Um, so I just really didn't want to have the risk of misunderstanding that I don't think hell and wrath and, and Good Friday are unimportant. I'm just saying that if we stop there only with our version of the gospel, I'm afraid we end up with people that are pretty locked up in their journey. But most people are trying to get their ticket to stay out of hell. And that's not what we're after. We're not after a ticket to stay out of hell. We're after a ticket to know Jesus and then the rest of our life pursue him so that we become like him, we think like him, we behave like him. Right. And when I'm out of, out of everybody's presence and I'm all alone, I still know I'm in the presence of Jesus. I still know that what I think and what I do is important and that for me, uh, it's not so much I was concerned about sin anymore. It's how quickly I'm going to repent and come back to Jesus and say, I'm sorry for what I've done. I don't want to live that way. And, you know, again, I, I want to say it's very helpful to know what the law-gospel distinction is. Yeah. You preach the law to afflict the comfortable. You preach the gospel to comfort the afflicted. So what Peter like said that. a few minutes ago, uh, there are people that are comfortable in their sin. There's no hell. Uh, God is mush. Or if he exists. And to them, we preach the law. Right. 
and we, we, we afflict them. We show them we are a sinner, you're under God's wrath. And once they're under the conviction of God's law, you don't preach the law at that point. You only preach the gospel mm-hmm. that Christ has died for your sins. And again, you preach the law to afflict the comfortable, but then you pl- uh, preach the gospel, Christ's death and resurrection, to comfort the afflicted. Yeah, and, Tom, Tom, I love that. And I know that, you, you know, your your context that you're working in is often where the comfortable need to be afflicted. You mm-hmm, know, the ministry sure. that you're doing is in a context, an environment where people are really running wayward into into weird versions of the faith. In my context is people who are terribly afraid mostly mm-hmm. by God. So, you, you know, what, what part of the gospel you emphasize, however yep. you said that about comfort and afflicted, I think that was beautifully said well, and really important. And thanks. And, you know, Peter, you're right. Because I think you teach at the University of Northwestern. You've got a lot of Baptists, don't you? And evangelicals. Yeah, Baptist, uh, Evangelical, Covenant, sure. Yep. yep. And my audience my has been a lot liberal, mainline Protestants that don't believe in hell. You know, everybody goes to heaven and God is mush. So there's two different audiences going on. <laughs> right. For sure. <laughs> yep. That's where you got to know your audience, and that's, that's important. Right. Yeah, great discussion, guys. Here's a question from Jane. She was reading Luke 22. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. Mm -hmm. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. The sentence about the angel appearing surprised me if I read or heard it before, I have forgotten it. What do you make of the angel from heaven appearing and strengthening Jesus? Did an angel appear to Jesus at any other time on earth? Were there eyewitnesses to this angel's appearing? there's, There's a good segue here, Bill. Go ahead. Jesus said, let this cup pass from me. And the question is, what was the cup? In the Old Testament, I think it's Jeremiah, is it? It talks about the cup of God's wrath, which is what we've been talking about. Jesus on the cross drank the cup of God's wrath for us so we wouldn't have to drink it for eternity. Uh, now you can go to your question. <laughs> well, what if, yeah. But that's a good segue. But you go back to Jesus when he was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, and it says yes, after the time exactly. was up, the angels ministered to Jesus. So, yeah, there you, you go. Know, There's so a second you got time. A, you've got a second time that's happening. And I think it happens more to us than we realize. We just don't recognize uh, that it's an angel or that the Lord is speaking through uh, sending an emissary. We don't recognize that half the time, but he, he is. And I believe that's going on all constantly. And, you know, it doesn't say. It just said they ministered to him. It doesn't right. say they talked. It doesn't say they patted him on the back or any of that. It just says they ministered to him. Whatever that means. Yeah. Yeah, and it seems like about every other week, guys, correct me if I'm wrong, but we're getting into some conversation about the supernatural, and, it, and it's such a difficult conversation because we're not used—so many of us are not used to that in Western culture, and so— there, there can be some some goofiness that happens within that conversation for sure. So we tend to throw the baby out with the bathwater. But this is where, uh, Bill, you've had Michael Heiser on the program a number of times, and I referenced him a few times on your show. His books are not easy reads by any stretch, but his books about the supernatural realm, the unseen realm, angels, de- demons, all of that, I think they are some of the most responsible biblical research done on the unseen realm for those of us who are terribly unfamiliar with it. And when we read these stories about angels ministering to Jesus, it it doesn't really compute very easily, at least in my own Western mind. So I really recommend taking a really slow, long, but helpful slog through the Michael Heiser books as someone who really has done some good research in that area. I appreciate that, Peter. All right, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, I hope there's continue, uh, continue to send more questions in, 877-933-2484. i got a bunch of great questions coming up. 
So if you sent a question over already, you're in the queue. Again, 877-933-2484. Guy Talk is uh, going on with Pastors Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, and Peter Kaftner. We'll be right back. Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Primetime drive time. Let's get it started. Guy Talk, or Guys Who Talk, Pastors Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, and Peter Kapsner. We're so glad. You have lots of great questions coming in. I'd like to jump on this one here. I'm a member at a Lutheran church, LCMS. What does that mean? Missouri mm-hmm. Synod. Missouri Synod. Okay. And I like it. I sense a need to be rebaptized as an adult, but I don't know if this thought comes from God or from the devil trying to put guilt in my mind. I see myself as being under the authority of the church, and if they change their stance and say it's okay to be rebaptized as an adult, I will do it. Otherwise, I will ignore these thoughts. What do you think? I'm a 58-year-old man. Thanks. I can tell you the Missouri Senate is not going to change their mind on this one. <laughs> not until the second coming. And because Ephesians says one Lord, one faith, one baptism, baptism. I don't rebaptize people. If they've been baptized once, that's enough. And even if they drift away for 20 years and come back, some people... If you're going to baptize them every time they come back to Christ, you're going to have to do it 10 or 15 times. So one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So I would encourage this guy, you know, your baptism is fine, and just uh, trust in Christ. I have a friend who's been baptized seven times, Mm -hmm. seven times, and he's looking for number eight because he hasn't understood, you know, the initiator of the covenant and who really is behind baptism, which is the Lord himself. It's not just the individual choosing to be baptized. It's the Lord's hand in the midst of it. And we've lost that concept of covenants in Christianity and Western society. I'd be curious what you guys think about um, adult believers getting baptized, even if they were baptized as an infant, in order to sort of confirm their baptism within the Lutheran tradition. I know that there's a lot of people that do an adult baptism to, to as, a, as a symbol of confirming what their parents did for them. But that would be the role of confirmation, would be my understanding within that specific mm-hmm. uh, denomination, right? But it, I completely disagree with the idea of getting baptized seven, eight, nine times, but I can at least get my head around the idea of being baptized as an adult. Although mm-hmm. I think infant baptism was practiced, like whole house baptism was practiced in the scriptures, and I think there's yeah. quite a bit there to, to get into. Yeah. All right, let me move on. Um, I've heard that God knows the number of days you will live. Does God have, uh, does God have everyone's lives mapped out? Don't we need to first make our own personal decision to follow Jesus before he can map out our lives for us? Before we are chosen, don't we first have to surrender since we have free will? Hopefully I have made 
I've made sense on this question. I think he has. Well, that's very popular. It's very popular and common for people to believe God gives everybody free will. You decide whether you're going to accept Christ or not. I don't believe any of that. Mm-hmm. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. He said, disciples, you did not choose me. I chose you. So I would say to this person, not only do you have to choose Christ and then you let him map your life out, when you chose Christ, God was doing that in your heart to map your life out. So it's not, no one can come to me unless the Father draw him, says Jesus. And a lot of times people are drawn by the Holy Spirit, which I believe with all my heart, uh, because I've never met anybody that can tell me the logical steps that happened in their life when they came to faith in Jesus. Mm-hmm. It was like one day they woke up and all of a sudden realized. So it's the work of the Spirit. The problem is I see the Spirit wake people up a lot, and then they go right back to their old way of life. They just seem to forget about Jesus, and mm-hmm. it's kind of like the parable of the sower and the seed. You've got four different soils, yep. and everything popped up. And I mean, and they, they looked good for a little while, and then it faded away. But the last one produced a crop. And I think that's what we fail to do because we don't put together with people both the concept of salvation and the concept of being a lifelong disciple. Both go together. You cannot separate the two. Yeah, I don't I don't have anything terribly profound to add to that uh, in terms of, I, I, you know, it's a question of God's foreknowledge always, right? And, and are we just living out robotically his plan or do humans have some measure of agency in this? And that's something that maybe is a little bit uh, larger topic for the show, but I think clearly... Uh, God knows the the steps that we we are in His hand. He is shepherding our days. I think we can safely say with trust that um, as we walk through the shadowlands that is this world, that is going to be filled with travail and trouble. That um, we can all look forward to the day when we are brought safely home to our actual home and our actual kingdom in which we're meant to live. And so we just trust that that the days that we have before us, whether they be ten days or or hundred days or a hundred years that God will continue to shepherd us all on the way in that process. You know, it's interesting. I spent time in Bangladesh, and that is a Muslim country, but you still have a a sizable group of people that have become Christians. And I was in the village with them, and I would go to their meetings, or I'd go to their their preaching. Here's what's interesting. The questions that they were asking are not the questions that we're asking. They expect to suffer. They expect to die. They expect their children will be taken away from them and never see them again. What they want to do is live faithfully for Jesus until the last breath, because being with him forever is the most important thing in their whole universe. And I think that's interesting because here in the United States, we have all different kinds of concepts about why would God allow this? Why would this 48-year-old woman die that I know who had two kids? And we don't have good answers for that, even from a theological point of view, except that what ultimately is important is to know Jesus, to walk with him, and to be prepared whether we live one day or we live a thousand days. Yeah. But we don't talk enough about that. Yeah, Parrish, I couldn't agree with you more. My wife and I were actually just chatting about it early this morning as heading out the door to, to teach, and we were just talking about um, what it would be like if we raised our kids in, in the biblical kind of context to say that if you want to follow Jesus, you can assume that you're going to have trouble in this world, that you will be yeah. misunderstood, that you won't have a place to lay your head, that you'll be involved in a warfare of sorts. Um, Jesus says in this world you have trouble, all of that. And and I think the epidemic of doubt that seems to run so roughshod through our country, doubt about God, doubt about who he is, um, and, and all of the pain and sorrow that comes from that is based on an improper expectation that 
uh, my dreams and my ideas and my circumstances of my life should be considered blessed, hashtag blessed, as long as everything is going well in my life. And when it doesn't, then we, we go to the wrong question of, well, that must mean that God is unfaithful. No, God's faithfulness is that he has overcome the world and he'll walk alongside of us as a shepherd in the midst of the trials. Um, and so we can sing great is thy faithfulness from that perspective. But if our view of God is conditioned by what our circumstances are in life, well, that's a wholly unbiblical worldview in terms of what Jesus was inviting his disciples to. So the point being, what would it be like if we raised our kids not first and foremost, hey, go do whatever you want to be, and then somehow have God bless or sanction all of that, but as opposed to saying, well, if you want to find your life, you're going to have to lose it, and you're going to be set up for a life of hardship and disappointment and pain, but take care, because in the midst of that, crazy stuff can happen, like joy and love and peace and laughter and wonder and delight, all of those things that are the unencumbered life. I think the last piece of that is Jesus says, take my yoke or take my teachings, take my way of life upon you, for my way is easy and my burden is light. And it doesn't mean that our walk through the world is easy and light. It means that his yoke, um, his teachings, allow us to continue to be people of sort of the twinkly eyes in this world, despite the travails of this world. And I, and I don't think we can emphasize that enough because we've, we've blended in some weird American prosperity mm -hmm. gospel into the kingdom gospel, and they, they just don't compute. They don't measure up. Yeah, you think uh, when Jesus was alive, the authorities wanted to kill him. His friends were confused by him. His family thought he was nuts, and he was homeless. <laughs> there you have it. Yeah, and that's what he said we're going to get, too, if we follow him. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. So this is a really interesting conversation and great points made by all of you, including you know, I still just believe that me. Peter no. and Justin. <laughs> I still believe Bill's, that. Yours was supreme. Bill. I'm trying to throw myself a bone here, right? Come on. Yeah, I still sure. believe that Peter and Justin need to come up with a devotional because every time I listen to them, I think I want to read that in the morning. When I do I get too. Up. I so, do too. I think. Good what stuff, book Peter. Are you reading you, you didn't mention me in that list, Tom. I've been with you too long, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> But All I'm right, pumped. here's another question, gentlemen. What makes humanity God's image bearers? It has to be more than physical appearance, or or we wouldn't be able to argue the value of life at conception. So what is it? Is it a multiple thing? That's a wonderful question. It is a great question. Go ahead, Tom. Uh, I <laughs> we are made in God's image. Yes. Does the Bible ever clearly spell out what that means? I don't know. I don't know a verse. I can't think of a verse right now. Do you know of any other creatures on earth, animals, anything, that have the ability to make choices like we do, that have the ability to know the living God? It's not there in Scripture. The mm -hmm. animals don't know in that sense. Uh, have the ability to choose right or wrong, good or evil. Have the ability to stand up for the truth. Animals don't do that. We do as human beings. We do when we know the Lord Jesus. And that's where the power comes from. And in that sense, we are in his image because he would stand up for the truth. He would declare what's right and what's wrong. And we have that opportunity as well, being created in his image. Now, do most of us do that? No, we don't. We fail. But those who do know him have that great opportunity. And that's where we've got to stand up publicly and still proclaim the gospel without hesitation. Great, uh, great comments. Here's another question. What do you say to people who are not in church but say they worship God through their day and at home? No church home, but say it's about their life, an individual living for God on their own. I asked, I had a person say that to me. I said, when did you get the memo from Jesus? Because I haven't seen it in the Bible. He says we're to gather together. He built the church. It is his bride. Yep. And if you've got a memo from Jesus different than mine, please show me. Until then, your problem's with Jesus. I tell you, I, I'm... 
I'm nervous about people who don't go to church. They're yeah. not part of a church. Jesus yeah. said what you just, no, excuse me, Hebrews 10, 25, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Right. And if you're not part of a body, uh, the body of Christ, I mean, even the, I think the reformers, not just the Catholics teach outside the church, there is no salvation. You need to be part of a church. Right. And uh, I get, uh, you know, I, I have a TV show and I get emails from people that, you know, Pastor Brock, the church is in darkness. I just read the Bible by myself. And these people think they're the only understanders of the Bible. And then you <laughs> then you read what they believe. It's weird. People get weird in their belief systems when they don't go to church. Here's the good news, Tom. After I watch your TV show. Yes. I have to go to church. <laughs> <laughs> I, no, seriously. I, people say, well, Pastor Brock, you're in my church. I write them back. No, no. I'm not. Hebrews 10, 25, get into a church. Yes. You can't get communion out of a TV set. I know you do And, and yep. the, other, the other thing about uh, church, I mean, uh, we go to church not just to get. We go to church to yes. give and to use your spiritual gift. You can't do that to a TV set. No. So I, I get nervous when people don't go to church. I agree. Interesting question. A very close friend's husband recently received an unexpected life-altering diagnosis. As I was praying for them, asking for God to miraculously heal him, I wondered to myself, why should God miraculously heal him or me or anyone? How does God decide who he will miraculously heal? Then it popped into my uh, head the phrase, shepherd the miracle. I was wondering, does God miraculously heal people who he determines will shepherd his miracle well. Well, I would hesitate to to say that overly dogmatically, for sure. I don't know that there's anything from, from Scripture that I could interpret that would mean that his, his miraculous healings are conditional on the kind of person who would receive that. I, I, I would say that um, healings that happen are, again, they're completely within, within God's authority and context, and they're meant to shine his wonder uh, as bearing witness to his kingdom, <clears throat> but it's just it's just simply another way in which uh, we bear witness to his kingdom and healing. And, and I would emphasize that some of the most profound witness bearing I've ever experienced are people that have walked into the waters of death in their last couple of days of life, not having been healed. The way they walk into those waters of death are are some of the the, the most profound witness bearing I've ever seen. So whether you are healed or not healed, it is it is all about bearing witness to the kingdom. But I think we can. We have an understandable impulse, especially when it's maybe a younger person who is sick and their life is cut short compared to others or really tragic circumstances. The understandable impulse is we want to have more time on this earth with people. It would be weird if we didn't have that impulse, but I think that impulse has to be um, at least conditioned by the idea that any miracle that may or may not happen is meant to bear witness to the kingdom um, not for us to, to to take and kind of make it as our own. So, yeah, whether in life or in death, all of it points to him, right, at the end of the day. And, and that's what we're meant to do in, in both circumstances. And I think God heals some and not others because some people's time is up and some yep. isn't. And, I mean, I I had a two weeks ago I had a funeral for a great guy who was the volunteer for our finances for our ministry, our TV show. And he had uh, after-death experience went through the tunnel, saw the uh, angels who said, you have to go back. And he came back for 13 years. And I kidded about him, w- with him about it, but I meant it. I know why you had to come back so you could do our finances for 11 years. And he did. He did a wonderful job. But then he died two weeks ago after we prayed and anointed with oil. This is a man I did not want to die, not 
only for good reasons, but for selfish because he did such a great job. But and when I had COVID for 18 days, I was praying, Lord, please take me home uh, if it's your will, but it wasn't God's will. So it just depends when your your time is up and you've fulfilled God's purpose. Mm-hmm. Let me take a little break. Let me know if you have a question you'd like uh, on the show, 877-933-2484. Guy Talk uh, is with Pastors Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, and Peter Kapsner. We'll be right back. We want to connect with you on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. We're creating encouraging posts every day to help you focus on the important things as you spend time on social media. From graphics that feature Bible verses and quotes from our hosts and show guests, to articles about topics you are interested in, to videos from our hosts. Search Faith Radio on social media sites to connect with us today. Got a nice comment from Amy. She said, this is the parenting group I want to meet with weekly. (laughs) I love it. Wow. All right, here's a question directed at uh, Peter. Uh, You were on a Carmen show and talked about Nadia Bowles Weber being a public witness. What is a public witness? Yeah, I think it's a relatively new position. It's somebody who is the outward facing sort of face of the denomination. And I think, uh, Tom's, you can speak about uh, her doing this as well, but she's no, somebody I, who's... I'm not inviting them to do so. <laughs> <laughs> she's, uh, 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 she's, she's representative uh, of the denomination. And, and I think where there's quite a bit of, of consternation about this is she's somebody um, who would be considered really progressive, very liberal in her views around things like sexuality and and some other topics. And she's going to be seen absolutely as an authoritative voice uh, for a large swath of people, uh, seen kind of as this rebel uh, who who has found a different way that's going to be perceived as being better in the kingdom. And, and I think there's there's a lot of concern about the kinds of gospel that she's preaching, but she'll be the public face of that denomination. And doesn't Scripture say, do not presume to become a teacher of the Word because you'll be held more accountable? That scares Parrish, me. I just said that very thing in class today. I said, you know what? Please do not drink all of the Kool-Aid that I'm pouring you here in class. I've yeah. given you my best shot to understand the Scriptures, um, but please understand that because we live in the fog of this world, not, we're all seeing through a glass darkly. Absolutely. It's all the shadowlands. So, so we say yes to following Jesus, and then we do our best to articulate the truth and the wonder of the gospel and the kingdom and the, and the scriptures and all of that with the humility of saying, but at the same time, please do not become a disciple of me. And I think a lot of people are going to become disciples of Nadia Bowles-Weber as a result of her charismatic personality. Uh, she certainly has it, and, and a lot of people are going to be listening. Mm-hmm. Yep. Good word. I have a question about oneness Pentecostals. I don't know much about them. Tom Brock, I believe you do. Yes, I do. They... Um... T.D. Jakes was a oneness Pentecostal, but if I understood things right, he now believes in the Trinity like most Christians do. Oneness Pentecostals believe that they're also called Jesus only, right? which means only Jesus is God, and the Father and the Spirit are—it's kind of the old modalism or Sabellianism Mm -hmm. heresy where sometimes God is Father, sometimes he's the Son, sometimes he's the Holy Spirit— different modes, and the, the Bible teaches, no, one, there's one God who is eternally three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So, and, and I, think, I think oneness Pentecostals teach you have to speak in tongues to be saved. So I, I would not go 
uh, to a Oneness Pentecostal church. And there's uh, a big one here in the Twin Cities, a very big one. Mm-hmm. And people don't even know it's Oneness Pentecostal because I don't think, but they assume it's a Baptist church, but it's not. Oh, I think they they have a, a deception going on. They are not thinking it through. The church is always, I mean, from some of the earliest church fathers, and they, they developed this, of course, in the creeds and that, you know, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Salvation is in the name of Jesus. So I think there are many Oneness Pentecostals that are going to be in heaven. They just didn't recognize the fullness of the deity because our salvation still comes through submitting to the name of Jesus. And I think we have to be—we're caught in between on those two. I mean, I want them to believe in the Trinity, but quite frankly, we talk so much about God in the church, we hardly ever mention Jesus, and most people don't even know who he is anymore. So we need that balance, and uh, Tom, I'm sending you over there to have a talk with him. Okay, I'll go. Uh, yeah, I would just if, just quickly on that part of it I, uh, about the role of the Spirit, too. I think that clearly the Spirit is active in our lives, but to, but to teach that there needs to be some sort of second blessing where you have outward evidence of the Spirit, and, and usually in that sort of tradition it's going to come through the speaking in tongues, that you have to have that second blessing in order to be saved. Uh, my best understanding is that would be a, a real misunderstanding of the book of Acts, where the Gentiles did speak in tongues at, at sort of the moments of believing in Jesus, the Spirit also came upon them. They spoke in tongues. But but the reason for their speaking in tongues is that the Jews were so confused about how the Gentiles could be uh, start being grafted into the people of God. How could they be included, especially because they were supposed to not have anything to do with the Gentiles? And suddenly God's salvation is exploding out into the Gentile community. And so the Jews needed a sign. They needed some proof, some evidence that they were part of it. Uh, and that was so, so that speaking in tongues as evidence of the salvation only offered, as you said, Parish, but in, in Jesus was important for that time to help shape the church. But but to take that as a doctrine to say that you have to speak in tongues to be saved, I think would be a real misunderstanding of, of the book of Acts. Well, and, and Paul even says when he's talking to the Corinthians, do all of you prophesy? Do all of you speak in tongues? And the obvious answer is no, mm-hmm. not everybody yeah, does. Right. And yet they were full members of the church, they were part of Christ's body. And the church accepted them. And, and here's where things become cult-like with the Oneness Pentecostals. The reason Paul had to write the book of Galatians was they were teaching Jesus and circumcision saves you. Yes. And Paul writes the book of Galatians yeah. to say, no, Jesus alone saves us, not circumcision. Right. When somebody says you have to have Christ as your Savior and speak in tongues to be saved, they're adding something to the gospel. And I think yeah. Paul would write him a letter. Yeah. yeah, I I really wish I could have been in that Galatian community that day when the when the messenger showed up with Paul's letter, right? And you get to to chapter four, and he's like, "You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? You started with the Spirit, and now you yeah. think you have to be circumcised." Like these letters, that you could have heard a pin drop, I bet, in the church when they showed up at the scroll of Paul's letter on it as, he, as he's correcting what's <laughs> going on there. Especially when he said, "I wish those who are troubling you would." cut themselves off, (laughs) meaning emasculate. It's a rough passage. Ouch. Yes, Yes, that is. (laughs) Here's a great question. This is about money. I've led about 10 mission trips to Haiti. After the earthquake, a lot of Haitian friends are asking for money. I felt compelled to help one of them, but didn't have it in my budget outside of my tithing. So I used a portion of that to send for supplies. Do you think that was wrong? There's nothing in the Bible that says you have to give your tithe no. to your local church. I do it. Right. I think it's wise. I don't think that there's any reason you can't make an exception. 
What I like to do is give my 10% to my local church and then give my offerings, my above, beyond 10% anywhere I like. That's what I like to do. But again, I don't know any clear verse on this. Mm-hmm. It's up to the individual Christian's discretion as the Lord leads them. If that's what they want to do, that's fine. See no issue there at all. Yeah, great. Agreed. Yeah, great comment to the question about are we created in God's uh, image? Is it more than physical appearance? And great comment that followed up saying, if I understand the question correctly, I would add not only did God create us in his image, but also for fellowship with him, one another, and to represent him as ambassadors mm-hmm. on earth, mm-hmm. et cetera. Yeah. See that uh, he said a number of verses. Good word. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. So uh, we only have a couple of minutes left. Um, anything else? Uh, you know, I just, I don't think we, I don't think that being in the image of God means that we're in God's physical image. I don't think God looks like we do. You know, I don't think he, he has two eyes and two ears and a mouth. You know, I, I, I don't think that's where we want to go. So physically, I don't think we're in his image. Yeah, I, th- I think one thing that we could say about the image, too, that is is too long for this little quick segment, but um, when God uses the word good in Genesis 1, he's not making a value description of creation. He's talking about the function or the intentionality of creation, that he has set the conditions in which creation can continue to build and move forth and grow and multiply according to his plan, his intention, his beauty, his wonder, his delight, all of that. And then he says to the two imagers after he makes them that they are to um, to steward creation or they're to tend and to guard are, are literally the words in the Hebrew that as they stay tethered to God in their life, they are also invited to participate God in the ever unfolding delight of his creation as it multiplies and grows and expands. Um, they're not to take of the fruit of the tree, right? They're supposed to live within the garden itself and not try to do it themselves, but they but they're meant to steward God's creation. So we're his images, we're his stewards of his ever unfolding creation, I think is another way to think about it. Gentlemen, nice job today. I enjoyed Thank that. You, that Bill. was really a good it discussion. Was great. great show. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, I appreciate it. I'd the... like to talk about substitutionary atonement next uh, show if we could. <laughs> you better Do believe it. Cover that at all? <laughs> so we got that to look forward to, which is nice. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> 23 you. hours. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, Martha just said from Manchester, Guy Talk isn't long enough. You need to do an extended version. I think next. Uh, Thursday, we're doing an extended okay. version. Love it. That's so great. I hope I'll be that's going to work. Yeah, you're going to be calling in. Peter, you'll be here, Tom. I'll be here. You'll be here. Okay, that's the plan. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, hour two is just ahead. Dr. Randy Newman is my guest for the hour. He's written a book called Mere Evangelism, 10 Insights from C.S. Lewis to Help Share Your Faith. It's going to be a wonderful discussion. After a short break, we'll be right back with hour two. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.